Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I am your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am broadcasting from East Lansing, Michigan, the ancestral homelands of the Anishinaabe, Free Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi peoples. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast, weekly web show, and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. Student Affairs Now is hosted by Drs. Keith Edwards, Glenda Guzman, Susana Munoz, and me. We intend this podcast to make a contribution to the field while being restorative to the profession. We release new episodes each week on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Find us online at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter. This episode is a conversation with the authors of a new book, The Curricular Approach, a revolutionary shift for learning beyond the classroom. I have a copy of it right here. I met with the five individuals and recorded this episode earlier this summer, and we're bringing it to you today as part of our intent to highlight those who are meaningfully contributing as practitioner scholars to the field of student affairs. In a moment, I'll introduce you to the five authors joining me today, but first let me give you a little bit of background on the book. As, you're, as you will learn when you read the book and hear from the authors in a moment, the curricular approach is at its core about alignment and organization. This approach aims to align the mission, goals, outcomes, and practices of a student affairs division with those of the institution. And it's about organizing intentional and developmentally sequenced strategies to facilitate student learning. On today's webcast, we're going to hear directly about this approach from the authors as they explain how all campus units focused on students can implement a curricular approach for educating students beyond the classroom. I'd like to welcome the five authors. Dr. Kathleen Kerr is Associate Vice President of Student Life at the University of Delaware. Dr. Keith Edwards is a speaker, consultant, and coach. Dr. Jim Tweedy is the Director of Residence Life and Housing also at the University of Delaware. Dr. Hilary Lichterman is the Associate Director of Residence Life at the University of South Carolina, and Dr. Amanda Kinner is Executive Director of Residence Life and Housing at Indiana State University, Terre Haute. To begin today, I'd like to have each of you introduce yourself, um, give a bit of backstory about how you became to be uh, champions of the curricular approach. Uh, Kathleen Kerr, let's start with you. Hi everyone, my name is Kathleen Kerr. I'm Associate Vice President for Student Life at the University of Delaware. I use pronouns she, her, hers. Uh, my role as a champion of the curricular approach started at the University of Delaware when we began this approach and has continued as I've watched this approach uh, in action, help us here articulate our value of the student experience as we contribute to learning. So I'll just leave it at that and I think you'll learn more about, uh, about me and our approach as we talk. Great, Keith. Hi everyone, my name is Keith Edwards, speaker, consultant, coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I first learned about this approach going to the first institute uh, that Jim and Kathleen and their colleagues hosted at the University of Delaware where I was cynical and dubious and snide and full of myself. I've grown a lot since then. Uh, and uh, sat at the end of that institute feeling like this was revolutionary and that would change how I would think about my work going forward. And, and indeed, I've never looked back since then. So that's how I became uh, involved and been involved with the Institute of the Curricular Approach for 13 years since. Great. 
Jim. Hi, everyone. Again, my name is Jim Tweedy, and I go by the pronoun, I go use the pronouns he, him, and his. I have been at the University of Delaware for 22, 23 years or so, but in terms of my approach to being a champion of the curricular approach, it's also, uh, I'm a champion of the idea that we're educators. Um, I have been a lifelong and plan to be a lifelong res lifer. In fact, I grew up uh, in a small little Nebraska household with uh, 14 siblings, so this whole idea of high-packed, high-density community living and the capacity to learn from that has always been a fascination to me. And as I went through my own academic program and even my own doctorate program, I became more and more convinced and committed that um, while we've always seen gains out of things like residence hall and residential campuses and things like that, that um, there's so much more we can do. And that idea that while at times I'm an administrator, while at times I'm a manager, my core identity is that of an educator. And that means I need to take student learning and education seriously. And that's where my career long um, aspirations to you know, work on how our students learn outside the classroom or beyond the classroom is something I'm deeply committed to. Great, thanks Jim. Hillary. Hi everyone, I'm Hillary Lichterman. I use she, her, hers pronouns. I serve as the Associate Director of Residence Life at the University of South Carolina. Um, this approach just seems natural to me. I, like many of my colleagues here, started as a resident assistant, have navigated different models and approaches to learning, and I think fundamentally this has been such a highlight and signature approach in my work in, as a professional, in my studies, in my doctoral program and dissertation work um, and just with colleagues on campus in my department um, near and far and at the Institute and has really been enriching and feels just right as we think about what our students deserve. Excellent. Amanda. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Amanda Kinner, and I'm the Executive Director for Residential Life at Indiana State University, and I use pronouns she, her, and hers. Um, when I um, was at Penn State Erie, the Barron College, I had a living coordinator who was doing her master's degree in curriculum and instruction. And she brought a book um, to my office on curriculum mapping. And we sat there and poured over how that could be applied to our work in residential life. Just a few months later, we were able to send her to University of Delaware to see the work that they were doing. And she came back completely on fire. And it changed the complete direction of how we were doing our work. And then I had the pleasure two years later, or a couple years later, of going to McAllister College. And I can remember sitting in that room and thinking, this is it. This is how we're going to make real difference and real learning happen in our residence halls. Um, and since that day, I've just continued to move forward and get more and more excited about um, what I'm seeing happen with our students with this approach. Excellent. So tell me a little bit about how this curricular approach emerged and what it is in general. We gave it a brief recap, but what is it? Uh, Kathleen? Yeah, I'll talk about how it emerged. And I think that Amanda offered me a really excellent segue. So at the University of Delaware in probably the early 2000s, we were looking a lot at how the residence halls, and specifically the experience in the residence halls, how that experience was contributing to the educational aims of the institution. University of Delaware, like many institutions, we had general education objectives and goals. We wanted as a residential program to be providing our students with opportunities to learn things that help them achieve those general education objectives. We had thousands of touch points with students. We had high satisfaction numbers. We had data points that showed us that our students were attending hundreds of programs at thousands of hours a year. When we tried to assess that learning, we showed little impact, we showed little learning. 
So uh, again, it was early 2000s. The student learning imperative had been published in 1996. Learning Reconsidered was published in 2004. In 2006, we read Elizabeth Witt's article, Are All Your Educators Educating? So to Jim's point, we viewed ourselves as educators. We were using what many colleges used in residence life and housing programs, a programming model. RAs go out and do an ethics program, do a diversity program. It wasn't working, students weren't learning. So we decided to throw that out and start over again. We were attending institutes on student learning. Lee Ward was a speaker at one of those institutes, citing an article that I believe he had read by Bloland and Stamatakakis. He said, why don't people in student affairs, in student life, use a curriculum? Why don't they create a curriculum for learning like our colleagues in academic affairs do that map out the intended learning and that then map those strategies to achieve that learning? And Jim and I were in the audience with some other colleagues from the University of Delaware um, struggling with how to have an impact on our students in the halls. We went back to Delaware and we started playing with these ideas. There was a lot in the literature about good assessment, about how to write learning outcomes, about how to do pedagogy. We had not connected those dots. So we began to connect all of those pieces together and to put in place an approach that would allow us to use the resources that were given to us to facilitate learning that was important to our institution. That led ultimately after a lot of years and revisions and assessment to the curricular approach. So I think that's, that's the briefest summary I can give to how it emerged and I'll let Jim describe in more detail about what a curricular approach is. Thank you, Kathleen. And part of it I wanna put forward um, that this is, um, you know, Keith referenced revolutionary. It's also pretty straightforward. Um, and it's not something we've invented. We didn't invent any term curriculum. Um, the uh, academic programs, I don't know if you're talking K-12 or if you're talking higher ed, um, follow a curricular approach in which you frankly take a broad construct um, and you find a way to narrow it down to actually the type of learning and the learning approach and what students learn as a result. So. I've always considered this to be a major focusing approach. And one of the pieces that you know we, we hear a lot or we get a lot of requests of, you know, could you share your curriculum? Could we pass it around? And we certainly see that at the Institute quite often. Um, these all have to be an invention at the home institution um, that's not transferable around um, no more than a curriculum for say a psychology student would just be cut and pasted into another university. These have to be created with your home institutional context in mind, um, the specific goals that your institution has for undergraduate learning, um, and that we then are helping represent our institution for doing that. So we've definitely we've typically first you know asked people to examine and kind of study their own institutional context, their own institutional artifacts, and really get a sense and a flavor about you know, when we say that a person has a undergraduate degree from Delaware, Minnesota, South Carolina, or wherever it may be, um, that there's particular things about that that we want to really try to make sure that we are connecting with, enhancing, and furthering within the beyond the classroom context of our learning domain and our environment. We do it very differently, frankly, than a classroom, but we follow the same sort of uh, curricular approach in terms of, uh, you know, initially a broadly stated what we would call an educational priority um, that we um, develop. And it's, um, it sounds fairly simple, but it takes quite a bit of dialogue, conversation, um, examination of your own kind of 
framework about what you believe to be true about uh, student learning, what you believe to be a value for your own educational context. Um, you know, and then frankly, from there, it's a matter of taking that more broad educational uh, priority and moving that into the particular categories that you want to explore. Um, I can go back to kind of an academic program at this point. You know, let's say I was a, you know, a dean of a business college. Um, you know, we may broadly state that, you know, we want students to have X, Y, and Z um, components out of our broad-based learning, but then every one of the departments would end up having their own inter interpretation, articulation, and then they would put that together in terms of what happens with each of the class, and then it's expressed in its final form um, on the classroom syllabus in terms of the learning outcomes there. So each of these pieces has to be um, taken from a broad construct and narrowed down until we get to that point of our intersection with our students. And one of the important factors for us is, you know, when you take your educational priority and you determine what sectors of that, and many, many schools will have a broadly stated framework around citizenship. Um, you know, we see that quite often with a number of schools, and I think that's a very appropriate kind of domain, um, even though I'm not trying to push any recommendation toward a certain category, but even within that, um, we have to make some decisions about what areas are we exploring if we decided that we were focusing on this idea of citizenship? And, you know, are we looking at activism? Are we looking at to a degree of efficacy? Are we looking at voter types of things? Um, civic engagement to a certain degree? I mean, all those decisions have to be made by your team and within your institutional context. And then they have to be described and defined because every one of us as human beings and as educators will look at the same terminology and maybe come to some different conclusions, but it's important for your team to have an understanding that when you put out the terms or you put out the categories of what we're trying to do, because that then um, moves over into developing your more formal learning outcomes. And ultimately, it's that that drives your educational strategy. Um, very often, we start with educational strategy and attempt to put outcomes with it. And that's certainly something we would say, please, please, please don't. Um, your curriculum model and what we're trying to recommend to our practices is that you do all your due diligence of kind of your self-study, your self-examination, and that you're able to fully describe what you're asking your students to learn. And, and frankly, if you can't fully describe what you're asking your students to learn, then you likely aren't necessarily able to help provide teaching for that or to provide educational strategies for that. So the language is really important for you to get through um, and you certainly will never be able to assess it if you can't describe it. Um, so in terms of being able to improve um, that whole piece. But um, I think ultimately when we look at the design and the model of this, um, in our presentations and publications and within this book, we certainly describe, you know, kind of a 10 essential elements of how we do this in core areas with a step-by-step -step guide about how you take on each of the components um, and you know we'd ask that you know um, folks who are following this you know take a serious look at each one of those components because they're you know very important in and of themselves um, leading you to you know again your ultimate goal of being able to provide quality education for your students in our arena and to be able to model that in our you know, highly unique places of learning there's some things that we can do out beyond the classroom that really can't be done in a classroom so we also recommend you know, not trying to replicate those kind of pieces and the other piece that I'd like to put forward is that there's no such thing as a perfect curriculum model. There's no such thing like that in K-12. There's no such thing like that in our um, college classrooms environments or within our academic programs. This is a constantly evolving process. And so as people enter this arena, you know, I say go forward with some enthusiasm that you're going to have some walls. You are going to have some barriers. You are going to have some things that 
looked really good on paper and just never worked out. And that's all wonderful. Um, that this needs to constantly evolve, be constantly looked at and constantly examined um, so that you know, we're in a, we're in a co-creation space with our students and our staff um, every year on these processes. And one other piece that I put forward is that it's been really valuable for us to, you know, it's one of our essential elements that we've had an external review process and that we have the capacity to um, annually express what we're trying to do for student learning and to have that challenged by folks who don't speak our language necessarily, uh, necessarily and don't fully kind of understand where we're coming from. And that helps clarify all of our areas at the same time helps build some more campus partners. So there's an awful lot to be said about this. And you know, as folks may have observed with me, I do tend to talk too much, but I would encourage folks to really look at each of our essential elements and look for a stronger narrative on that front. Um, so uh, thank you for the question on that arena. And you know, certainly this is one of those pieces that we referenced here that we've you know um, started it um, at the University of Delaware and we've been able to have you know terrific traction in that arena. However, it's evolved in so many different ways and it's been taken on in so many different fronts um, and has you know, certainly taken a life of its own um, through there. And I think Keith was gonna speak a little bit about some of the evolution that we've seen you know, based from our initial foundation of the model. Great, Keith, do you wanna talk a little bit about that? How has uh, the model, the book, the idea evolved over time and why did you all decide to publish this book right now at this time? Yeah, thanks, Heather. I, I think, um, you know, as we mentioned, I went to the first institute uh, hosted by the University of Delaware in January of 2007. I think there were 47 of us there for that. And it really was an institute for folks to learn what the folks at the University of Delaware were doing, how they were thinking about their work differently, how they might pull what they were doing and apply it on their own campuses. And I really went, Jim and Kathleen asked me to go because I had worked with them previously and I was reluctant and, and went very, very cynical. And, um, but I remember sitting at the end thinking, this is revolutionary and this is obvious that I would never think about my work the same way again. But once you make that paradigm shift, which is really difficult because that's, that involves unlearning and letting go of a lot of our student affairs dogma, that's really hard. As Jim mentioned, this is, this is very simple. It's not, it's not more complicated. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. In many ways, it, the big benefit is a curricular approach clarifies your thinking about what's important, what's not important, what's less important. Um, so that was my experience there is revolutionary and obvious. Um, the Institute continued to evolve as the Residential Curriculum Institute. I think we were in New Hampshire in 2008. Um, and more schools were sharing what they were doing, but we realized we weren't really, we we're kind of all sharing what we were doing, but we weren't really, really communicating what a curricular approach is and what it isn't. Mm -hmm. And so some of us uh, who were faculty for that, including Kathleen Kerr and I and others, sat in a hotel room and wrote on, <laughs> on a piece of notepad paper, uh, the 10 essential elements, which have changed in how we talk about them, but have essentially stayed the same uh, since that time. And those 10 essential elements really kind of became the cornerstones which we shared at that institute. Um, since then, we want to provide a really good beginning to the institute for folks who came. So Kathleen Gardner have done a, and I have done a plenary to begin that, sharing the ten, uh, this rationale that Jim and Kathleen talked about, these 10 essential elements, the components that Jim talked about, kind of laying the foundation for that. And um, that has continued on. The Residential Curriculum Institute uh, really evolved to the Institute on the Curricular Approaches. We saw so many more folks who weren't doing this just in residence life, but doing this as student affairs divisions. And uh, reflecting back, the reason why we called it the Residential Curriculum Institute is for no good reason. 
the only reason was those of us who were doing this and thinking about it happened to work in residence life. And so that's what our context was. The, the curricular approach works well in residence life. It works great in multicultural affairs and diversity and equity work as we talk about the progression of learning in that realm. Career centers, health promotions, conduct, orientation folks have been doing a curricular approach for decades without calling it that. But really, what do we want to sequence and how do we want to build this? So we switched to calling it the Institute on the Curricular Approach as we recognize a broader uh, way of engagement. And that institute now, 13 years after that first one at the University of Delaware, last time we, we had it uh, last October in Anaheim, had a 32 faculty who co-create that curriculum for a beginner track and a returning track, two keynote speakers, an opening plenary, um, lots of interactive engagement. It's really a wonderful opportunity to help people understand what a curricular approach is, how you do it, and then for people who've been doing it for a number of years to rethink and rethink and rethink, which is the key part of this approach along the way. So how, how this book got to be written is the, the five of us and others have been talking about writing a book for about five years and we've not been very good at writing it. And about two years ago, we got really, really serious about forcing ourselves to do it. We've done some other things in about campus, but really wanting to get this out as a resource for folks uh, who attend the Institute and folks who are not able to. So that how it came to be. The five of us got to, to author this, uh, but we, we always build our learning on our colleagues from the faculty at the Curricular Institute. Um, and it's been a really exciting thing to shape our thinking and change our thinking, see how things emerge uh, and see how things are innovating. So, so why now is one, we finally got our act together and talked about this project we've been doing for a long time, which if you've ever written your book, you know that's how it works. Um, but in now, I'm thinking about it now, we didn't plan this, but now here we are in a global pandemic, schools are switching to virtual learning or hybrid learning if they're optimistic. Mm -hmm. um, and we're here in the midst, I live in Minneapolis in the midst of massive social upheaval and protesting and arguing and for racial justice and social change. And so many of us are feeling that so poignantly um, and experiencing it so poignantly. And so I think um, two things that I think this, this approach really helps, just the focus on what is important to us and then letting that drive all the other decisions is so critical as we see changes in resources, uh, eliminating of on-campus housing. How do, you, how do you help students have that on-campus living experience when they're not living on campus and not going to the dining hall? And how do you navigate that? But if the learning is what we're focused on, then everything else is just a strategy. And often we get so tied up in our strategy of community meetings or workshops or conduct things, but really being able to redo this. And it allows us to bring lenses that are now more important than ever. How many students are gonna need a trauma-informed lens when they come back um, for all sorts of reasons? How many uh, students are gonna be demanding us that the justice lenses that we've always have are no longer good enough and we need to have even better justice lenses. How do we bring specifically anti-racist lenses to our education, which maybe two years ago was maybe inappropriate for us to do in public institutions. That whole landscape has completely shifted. And so that we have a whole chapter on pedagogy beyond the classroom, which really can help people, uh, folks think through this. And then many of us are recreating things on the fly. Um, you know, here we sit in July, <laughs> Who knows what you're going to do in the fall? None of you do. <laughs> None of you do. We're going to have to make it up as we go. So the curricular approach is so structured and organized that it helps you be very nimble and very flexible because you know exactly what you'd plan. So it helps you adapt really quickly. Um, and this ability to be purpose-driven and practice essentialism and really what matters and what doesn't matter. 
um, is really important as we think about the leadership that, that folks are gonna need going into this unknown of the fall of 2020 and further and likely years to come. So you both, all of you have mentioned that there are people who've been using this idea for a while. Um, and this book might also be presenting to many folks completely new ideas that they've never heard about. Um, Hillary, can you talk a little bit about how this book supports both those who are new and those who have lots of experience? And what about those who have already begun using a curricular approach and, and how would this uh, um, help them with their continued learning? Yeah, thank you, Heather. We think that will be very refreshing, whether you're new to this approach or refining, whatever the case might be. As we wrote this, we have the vision that this will be useful for undergraduate students who just know, like I did as a junior, this is my chosen path. This is what I'm doing. May not know all the ins and outs, but this is where I'm going or a vice president of student affairs or a president to understand that learning within and beyond the classroom and that coherence. Um, so that will be useful to span across a team and a campus and levels and roles. We're excited about that. Um, but whether you've come to the Institute or not, this is a great piece for context, providing some clarification. We're exciting and we're verbally excited and verbally expressing that today on the call uh, or on this chat, but um, the book provides some good context, a little bit about the why, and it's structured in a way that is also very practical and can be used in an experiential fashion where you can literally have the book out in front of you, set it to the side, get to work, come back to it. Um, there are activities about how to create an educational priority statement. What does a data dig really look like? Where do I begin thinking? And some framework skeletal bones, if you will, that will help you fill in the gaps that apply to your campus. Um, a great piece to have a common read, to have the, those stakeholders, um, to influence, to educate, to just spark dialogue, and as many of my colleagues have said, to provide clarity. The ideas and the context bring clarity in a shared approach, um, which is better for our students. Thinking about capacity building and the cultural pieces of this, this approach lends so beautifully to understanding leadership and understanding when there's staff turnover and change and unexpected components of life and organizations that this creates a framework that provides consistency, provides a narrative and provides that talking point, if you will. So those are a few ideas. Great. Um, so we've talked about the interesting context that we find ourselves in um, right now with a global pandemic. Um, and I do think that a curricular approach has some applicability. Amanda, can you talk a little bit about how this book will be a resource for student affairs leaders who right now are, but maybe in the future will be facing tough decisions in challenging times? Oh, you're on mute. <laughs> Um, absolutely. Um, as I've been thinking, um, the last four months have probably been the most difficult months in my professional career as a leader. Um, our entire, the way we do higher education on all of our campus has been turned upside down. The way in which student affairs thinks about their work, it has always been gathering people together in a common space and having learning and excitement and activities. 
and all of a sudden we're sending all of our students away. We're sending our teams to homes um, to do learning um, and to do work via a computer, via a screen um, and Zoom calls. And it's completely changed everything we've done. But as I've gone through the last four months, I've been so grateful of this curricular approach and this background because it's helped me to lead more effectively. It's helped my team to make the adjustment that has happened with COVID-19 and this pandemic so much smoother and to be more effective in what they're doing. Um, and I think um, part of that is because of essentialism. When you when you're have to make a decision, um, being able to focus on what your priorities are and when everything gets turned upside down to be able to go back our, to our priority is to teach students this particular learning goal. How do we do this in the new context in which we're faced? It allows us to get rid of all the extra noise and all the extra clutter and really focus in on a team to what really matters most. And this approach allows us to do that. It allows us to remember what's our goal, what's our outcome, what are we moving towards, and then how do we get back on track to really focus on that, despite the noise that's happening around us. Um, I think for our team, it's allowed us to be more nimble. Um, the, the curricular approach is so different than what many of us had been doing before, where you would gather everybody in the lounge for um, pizza and wings and watch the Super Bowl game, or get everybody together um, in the rec center for a huge large-scale event and then send everybody home. Um, we can't do that now. And I think where my team has, has benefited is that we weren't only using just those large-scale one-and-done approaches. We had developed a plan of learning that had a variety of strategies that um, invited lots of different people to the table so that when we were able, when we had a move to online learning, that community didn't end. They were able to very quickly and very nimbly adjust um, to what can we deliver in an online environment, what videos can we do, what social media platforms can we use, how do we keep this learning going when we can't gather into the lounge at nine o'clock on a Sunday evening, um, when we can't get together um, in a classroom space or with a club and organization face-to-face. -face. And the other thing that I think about is that our team also is able to not only be nimble and flexible, but they have over and over again, we've worked about having that beginner's mindset of being able to be innovative, about being able to um, forget about we've always done it this way and been able to think outside the box. And so with everything going on in our world and things being turned upside down, it didn't um, frighten them that, oh gosh, how are we gonna do this? This is all brand new. They were already thinking differently all the time. They were used to being able to um, adjust and to pivot and think things differently. And so this approach allows you then, it frees you, um, right? It allows you to let go of everything that you felt was the only way to do this and come up with new ideas that are going to target students and get them excited um, about their learning. And so our team has been able to adjust quickly to try new things, to be okay taking risks to unlearn everything that they've always thought about student affairs work or residential life work and just completely turn it upside down. Um, and so our, the book, particularly when it talk about pedagogy and our leadership, really focuses on how to really focus on developing what those priorities are, to think outside the box and learning, and learning to try something new, um, to scaffold that learning in a variety of different ways. Um, and so I think now is a really great time to do that. And then as Keith talked about earlier with um, 
the social change that's happening right now with the Black Lives Matter movement, there's a real opportunity that the curricular approach allows for us to inspect our work differently, to build that intentionality and think about who's not sitting around the table and how do we make sure those voices are being heard? How do we um, work to, um, to look at inequity and to systematically change that? And how do we build that skill set over time with our students um, so that they can really go out and change the world? Uh, it's a great opportunity right now to be able to focus in on that and redevelop intentionality around how we do that work. Great. So I think we just have a few more minutes left, but I'd love to hear each of you share kind of what's the main takeaway that you want folks who are watching this webcast today to leave with. Um, and thinking a little bit about not only the current context, but going into the future, um, you know, why this book now? And then what are the kind of primary things that you want them to know? Um, Amanda, I'm going to go back to you first, if that's okay. And then we'll go the opposite direction. Sure. Um, as I said, I think it's a great opportunity right in this moment to disrupt the status quo, to do things differently. And this book is all about that, doing things differently than what we've traditionally done in student affairs. Uh, and the other piece for me is very rarely have I found a book Whereas a, a VP or as a director, you can read it and take so much out of how you do your work. And yet a graduate student or even an undergraduate student can read it and take just as much information to be able to apply to the work that they do every day. Um, this book really allows us to take it at the 30,000 foot level, but also how do I have that one-on-one -on -one engagement with a student? What does it mean in the day-to-day -day work that I do? Um, so that's, I guess, what I'd leave you with. Great, thanks. Hillary, what's your final thought? Yeah, I would say that this approach, this book really lends to clarity. And that's what's so exciting for me. Uh, we can use our assessment data in creative ways. We, we can and should be talking with our students, but the ways in which we can provide clarity for our students and help our staff who are passionate about the work that they're doing, um, have a framework and uh, utilize their experience and their education is so important. So I think staying connected paying attention, keeping the vibrancy of this approach in mind is something that we addressed in, in the book and I, I hope that our readers will take from that. Great. Jim, tell us your final thoughts. Final thoughts are always tough for me. I got too many, <laughs> but um, I really want to speak to really all of my student affairs colleagues that if you thought you had a challenge with making your argument about resources um, in the past. And if you thought that you had challenges with having to demonstrate return on investment, having to demonstrate what we produce, what we contribute to our students beyond head counts, beyond what we've exposed students to, I, I'm saying you, you ain't seen nothing yet. Um, in terms of the financial pressures and in terms of the additional accountability pressures we're seeing that have been emerging every year, uh, the, their, their urgency is going to absolutely escalate in every front. If you're not already facing it now, trust me, you will face it all the next few years because this is not the, the financial devastation from COVID-19 on the higher ed uh, landscape um, is going to be with us for a long time. And frankly, um, we're all part of the educational construct. And I, I think our value has to be demonstrated with how we contribute to student learning, how we do that in our own area. And when you're making your value proposition um, to your institutional leaders, um, 
my belief is that it should be predicated on that. And then my hope is that we've been able to offer some resources and a guidepost about how to effectively do that. Excellent, thanks. Keith. Uh, that, was, that was a good one, Jim Tweedy. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I would add to that, I think people who aren't familiar with the curricular approach misunderstand it as this very restrictive, externally imposed thing. I'm not sure a curricular approach is for us. I'm not sure this is gonna work for us. And the curricular approach, is it not a new programming model? It's not a new set of rules. It's not, it's not restrictive. I heard Amanda say, it, it helps us be free to be in service of students. And the curricular approach is this lens, this framework that is a tool. I think it was sort of like the scaffold of a building and that's necessary. But what we put on that building and what it looks like and what it's gonna do and how it's gonna serve people and who their folks are is completely different campus by campus. So I think this notion, that, as Jim's saying, this curricular approach can help you demonstrate your service, um, the importance, your role in the education. I think we need to think about it as uh, less something externally imposed or a restriction, but our curricular approach is gonna help you be more effective in your decision-making, your focus, what you're gonna stop doing, what you're gonna let go of, what really matters. And it's just a tool to help you do that. And how they do it at Delaware and how they do it at McAllister College and how they do it at University of South Carolina and how they do it at San Jose State is completely different, but they're all using a curricular approach to help them make good decisions. Excellent. Kathleen, the final word. Yeah, that's a challenge. I can't just say ditto. Um, you know, I think that the, the joy for me is that I currently serve as an associate vice president and I oversee seven units within the division of student life at the University of Delaware, residence life and housing being one of those. And so I've had the privilege and the opportunity to try to help other units apply this approach to their work. So not residence life and housing. And I think the, the all of what everyone has said has come to fruition, the sense of clarity, the sense of um, not just chasing after the shiny penny, the sense of how do I articulate a case for the resources that I know that I need so that I can be best serve my students in the way that I know that I need to. Um, I think that over time, what I realized is that, and I don't know if it's an approach or if it's a model or if it's what it is though, it's a way to do your work, but it's also a way to think about your work and it is absolutely a mindset. And so I think that what I am most proud of in this book that I hope you will all read is that it not only gives you some practical tools, how to do that work better and how to serve our students better and how to really be engaged in the learning that occurs on our campuses, um, but it also provides you with a mindset, how to lead this work, how to lead your department or your division, um, how to attend to the diversity of our student population through really good pedagogy, um, I think that it is um, universal. For years and years in student affairs, we've talked about this bifurcation between student affairs and academic affairs. That becomes non-existent when you are pure and sure that you are committing to learning. And so it becomes an irrelevant conversation when you know that you are doing your best and utilizing your resources in the best way to contribute to that learning, which your institution has stated is the educational aim of your institution. And so I'm excited about this book. I'm excited that it will help others do good work on their campuses um, and appreciate that we've had the time to talk to you today. Yeah, yeah I just have to say, um, I was aware and I know one of our departments on our campus at Michigan State University is already using a, a curriculum, but 
when I began working in the Division of Student Affairs, I saw instantly a need for some type of structure. And so um, I was really excited when I got the opportunity to um, have this conversation with you all today that this might be something I can take back as a contribution um, to the Division of Student Affairs at Michigan State. So I am so grateful to all of you for joining me in this short webcast about the book. Um, again, the book is available now uh, from Stylish Stylus Publishing. I am so grateful for everybody's time today, listening and also participating as guests on Student Affairs Now. You can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Student Affairs Now newsletter or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe, share on social, or leave a five-star review. It really helps conversations like this reach more folks and build a community so we can continue to make this free for you. Again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks again to the fabulous panelists today and everyone who is watching or listening. Make it a great week. Mm -hmm.